there's a million issues where you can go like, look, this is not working correctly, and it's I don't know why. So it's gnawing at you, and you can't ignore it. Some people try to ignore it, or they try to talk themselves into, oh, it's okay. By the way, that happens a lot in companies where they sort of develop narratives that help them live with unsatisfactory situations. Very common in business. You see that in big companies. They live with mediocrity all day long, and they don't do a damn thing about it. I don't. I have a burning need to go and deal with it. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. When you were a kid, do you think you were really tough on yourself then? No, I never felt like I was being hard on myself. Do you consider yourself hard on yourself in general? No, I don't. People sometimes infer that from, you know, the way I generally am, but it's not from being hard on myself. It's more, um, we kind of live with fear of failure is probably the much more dominant sensation or dynamic that we live with, right? We fear failure and the people that want to be high performers, they fear failure big time. They just can't deal with the prospect of, you know, this is not going to end well. So that may come across as you being hard on yourself, but it really comes from a different place. When would you be tough on yourself? When is it that you feel like it's unacceptable to have some version of Frank that you're not living up to? Anytime I'm not confronting a situation that I know to be not good. I mean, the hardest part about being a CEO, at least for me is, and I think it is for most people, is that you have to confront all day, every day. The moment you know something and you're aware it's not okay anymore to pretend like it's not happening. Now there's urgency to go and deal with it. I will not allow myself to sort of compartmentalize it and I'll deal with this some other time. I'm going to deal with it right now. Do you have this urgency like everywhere? Meaning when you walk out of these, these offices and you go home, do you feel the same ants in your pants to move? No. Well, look, you know... uh, (laughs) If I have contractors around the house who are kind of screwing up a project, it's kind of the same thing, but I don't bring that attitude to my family. There's no room for that whatsoever. So I'm far more laid back and relaxed and tolerant. Imperfection is part of life, but when you're a CEO, you know, that's just the stuff that you're there for, right? Because if you're a person that is comfortable with mediocrity, you're not in the right place. Yeah. I heard you say after service now, when you took the time off to go sailing, right? You were just sailing. It was a couple of years, wasn't it? Two years, exactly. I would have thought that you would have been losing your mind. But the way that you described it is that you found it a quite satisfying experience no, being look, away from I, the game. Uh, look, I was an ocean regatta sailor, which is like running a Formula One team. So it was uber competitive, uber intense. I mean, really, okay. This is the same kind of things. It's technology, it's talent on the boat, organization, you know, all these things that go into a business you have there as well. If I had to scratch an an itch, that definitely would have been the place for it. And in many ways it was, you know, we were trying to win races, big races, you know. A lot of the times guests that I've had in the past describe their career as the avenue with which they expense all of this pent up energy. That's definitely how I feel. Like when I was a kid, my soccer coach used to call me spunky because I literally had it coming out of me. And I have found that a profession and a job is one of the only ways that I've figured out how to let it all out. Doing things around the margins, like working out or whatever, it does something for me, but there's no way that I could give this up to release this energy. It sounds like for you, there would be other ways is that fair? Like, you think you could do sailing full-time? No. I mean, I, I sailed those two years. I sailed like 70, 80 days a year, and that was a lot of sailing. That was a ton of sailing, especially at that level and that level uh, of intensity. But what you're describing is some of us have a lot of unresolved issues, if you will. In other words, manifestation, you know, and we just can't leave it alone. We really manifest ourselves through work and effort and projects like that. We do it because we have sort of unresolved situations. If you were a perfectly balanced individual, you wouldn't care. You wouldn't even have a reason to get up in the morning. But we do. 
here's the thing. You have to learn to get over that, right? At some point, when is enough is enough. You can't, till your dying day, you know, have that mental posture. It's pretty damned annoying. You have to learn to sort of have peace at some point in time. Maybe not when you're 20 or 30 or 40, but there comes a time where you're like, okay, you know, how many more companies do I have to run here? You know, I mean, yeah. When I finished Data Domain, which is my first company, it was a very successful company, right? Yeah. I mean, we took in $28 million of capital, and six years later, it turned into $2.4 billion. So not a bad deal, especially in those days. That was, that was really good. But then people said, oh, you got lucky, and I took that the wrong way, man. So That pissed you off? Pissed me off, yeah. And that, by the way, that, that happens a lot because people can't handle other people being successful that well. It's like, oh, you know, you're just lucky. I still hear that, by the way. You just keep getting lucky, you know, all the time. That then triggers that chip on your shoulder, right? Yeah. That, that's what it does. But there comes a time where you, when you say, look, you know, <laughs> I'm over it. Yeah. Do you feel like being at peace is in conflict with operating at a very high level? A little bit. Yeah, because uh, that conflict is really where drive comes from. Unresolved issues with siblings and parents and who knows what, you know, high school math teacher, you know. Something you're trying to prove to someone somewhere along the way. Yeah. And you think those feelings don't really dissipate? They do, but not entirely. It gets better and better with time, but it's very hard to be so perfectly happy and balanced with life that you know, sort of that manifestation no longer an issue. I mean, why does, why does Tom Brady cannot get off the damn football field after everything he's done? And by the way, all these guys have trouble getting off the field. Why? They've done everything that you could possibly imagine. It's not an, a unique thing. It's very common with people that are of that sort. Do you feel this pressure like you're supposed to be at peace one day or like there is a retirement looming? Let me give you an example. You know Shlomo. I do. You're on his board at Imperva. Yes. So I had Shlomo on a few weeks ago. You, Shlomo, Dave from Mongo, it's a rare air of folks that have done three. And he started three, which is incredible. He's going to take this company public too. And he talked about this idea where he thought he was supposed to retire after this. He looked at me and he's like, Jim, I'm not young anymore. Like this is a young man's sport. I agree with that. Do you though? Yeah. I think it is a young man's sport. But like using your Brady analogy, is it? Well, I mean, I think sort of Brady was obviously fantastic. I mean, I worship the ground he walks on. But there comes a time where enough is enough. I mean, you can apply yourself in other areas. It's like you can't keep throwing the ball. You know, when, when you've done it so many times, you have so much to show for it. It's enough. I think learning to be satisfied with that is actually an important thing. It's a maturation thing. You know, you can't always have that youthful spit and vinegar and that attitude and that chip on your shoulder. It's exhausting. <laughs> you might like, it must be exhausting for you. It is. And isn't this kind of the macro point that you make? If you want to operate at a high level, it's fucking exhausting. It's not actually as fun as people make it out to be. No, at many levels, it's not fun at all. Because if you're in this confrontational mode that we just talked about, I mean, who the hell wants to be confronting situations and people all day long? And how do you do that in a way that doesn't piss everybody else off? And yet you bring everybody along in that quest to be great. So, yeah, it's hard. And a lot of people like being a CEO. Well, they like the title. But being a day-to-day is not for many people. I think people have the, the intelligence for it. But they, they often do not have the personality of a CEO. They don't have the psychology of a CEO. That's, and by the way, I've been part of many CEO searches and, and there's a dearth of CEOs out there. It's very, very hard to find good CEOs for companies. You can just ask, ask anybody that, that's involved with that part. But the reason is not that people aren't smart enough or experienced enough. It's the psychology of the job is bloody hard to come by. Don't you feel misunderstood in this way? Don't you feel like the public persona or perception of you is that you somehow enjoy confrontation? Having listened to and read everything, the conclusion that I've come to is that this is a necessary evil for you. It is a necessary evil. I don't enjoy it at all. It's something that I make myself do. I have high empathy, so how could I possibly enjoy this? So, no, it's not. It's something that you have to make yourself do. It's the discipline and the fact that you can't hide from your responsibilities, that you have to confront your demons. Because you see things, you hear things. You can't pretend you didn't. You can't unhear something. So you have to act on it. You have to. That's your job. So we do it. How often are you confronting your demons? How often do you feel like you actually have to do that? All the time. 
I almost don't miss an opportunity to do it. You know? Can you give me an example? Well, it's just in conversations. I mean, if something is just not right in one particular area, whoever is in charge of that area, I mean, you will have that conversation with me whether you like it or not because I'm not going to wait for it. I'm going to give expression to that. We will have that conversation. Not in an adversarial, ugly way. I mean, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I mean, one of the things I've learned over the years is how to do this in such a way that people don't feel unduly, you know, called out or just like, oh, geez, you're very unhappy with me. No, it's more like, hey, you know, we have this set of issues. Here's all the, what I'm hearing this is what I'm seeing. How do you feel about this? How would you approach this? So in other words, it becomes a constructive conversation. It's a very short walk to, oh, shit, he's really expressing some serious concern about what's going on in my era. Yeah, I am. But I do it in a way to make sure that it is constructed and that people are open to the conversation. That's a technique. You got to learn that because if you're being an asshole, that's not going to end well. Everybody's going to be unhappy. And then politics set in, right? People need to think you're fair. In other words, you're not acting on an impulse and you're fair. They believe that you're right. That is something we should A, talk about, B, deal with. Another misconception that at least I think I came across as I was studying you, and maybe this was just me because I'm an idiot, but Data Domain, when you joined, which was your first CEO role, first of all, you were not a spring chicken at that point. Everyone thinks that you've been born a CEO and predestined for this your entire life. How old were you at Data Domain? I was 43 when I started there. That's number one. Number two, again, in my mind, I feel like everyone thinks that you're this scale CEO. Data Domain had no revenue, no customers, what, 15 employees, Yep. no product market fit, really. Poor product market fits to the point that we couldn't sell. We figured out how to sell enough for a year to stay alive because we couldn't go and, you know, raise money. Basically pay the bills. And then during that year, you know, we made enough progress to get ourselves another year of runway. And then from there on, we opened the aperture more and more and more. And we took off like a damn rocket. The first year was like, what are we going to do? This product is too small and too slow for you know, most mainstream use cases. And we were told very clearly, like, guys, come back when you have something that's bigger and faster because this is not gonna work. I mean, it was a terabyte of usable space on a 3U rack-mounted unit, okay? You can't even imagine, this is 20 years ago. You know, and this, this is after a RAID, which is our old disk protections and all of that. But we couldn't go back and say, oh, we'll just raise some money and we'll spend a year getting the product to be bigger and faster. No, we had to survive it with the money we had and basically manage ourselves to a fundraising milestone where we could raise more money and keep ourselves uh, in the game. Why did you take that job? Well, I had interviewed with tons of startups over a period of years. And everybody always said to me, you need to hold out, hold out. Don't jump. Don't jump. By the way, I give that advice still to a lot of people. Do not jump. Don't get so antsy that you're going to go take a you know second, third string type of deal. And the, the other thing is, look, you don't know, data domain, we didn't know, you know how good an opportunity that was. It was unknowable. Uh, there was just no data to suggest anything. We were one of hundreds of companies back in those days. One of our large investors back then, I would visit their office and people would look at me like, who is that guy? And, you know, never mind that, you know, a few years later, we end up bailing out their entire fund and then then they knew who we were, you know? Um, so yeah, things changed a lot. It was an absolute juggernaut of a story there, I mean, uh, in those days. But couldn't you have done something else as not the CEO at that point? Couldn't you have picked a snowflake of that time where you were a second no, or third? No, I, 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 would, I wouldn't have, probably wouldn't have qualified it. But look, at that point, my career didn't take off until I got my first CEO job. Yeah, I had other jobs before that and they were okay. But being a CEO, I, I ended up having my hands free. And this is really what a, a person like me needs. I need to have full scope of responsibilities. You know, before that, I spent my whole life just fighting the boundaries and the swim lanes that were established in the organization. It was immensely frustrating. I didn't like a lot of the CEOs that I worked for. I learned a lot from them, but not in the way you think. I had role models that weren't positive, but you learn more from negative role models than you do from positive ones, you know. I really needed to have my hands free, and this was my first opportunity. As I said, we were part of hundreds of companies, and we were all kind of looked at the same way, and we got lectured by the VCs about other companies. You should be more like them, and you know, all this kind of stuff. In the end, that was one of the most successful companies of its generation, and there were a few others. Of all the companies that I've run, I, I still have a, an extremely 
warm feeling about that entire uh, experience because of everything that we had to go through to achieve that outcome. Now, I didn't like the outcome because nobody ever wants to sell a company. That's the only company I've ever sold. Like ServiceNow, I mean, they're still around. It's a $140 billion market cap company. I sold, there's a, there were a bunch of reasons you know, for that. I learned very, very hard lessons that I have applied at later companies. So good outcome, but I, uh, I also learned valuable lessons there. The VC that doubted you, like you still wear that f***ing all over you right now. That was, looking at my notes, 20 years ago. It was funny, um, you know, one of the VCs who shall remain nameless, he said, like, you know what's wrong with you? You've never run sales. And I, I went on to run the next three fastest growing companies in the history of Silicon Valley. And they were like, you've never run sales. So basically, you know, what, what the problem is with VCs, they just want to check boxes. They cannot judge talent at all, you know, which is a severe weakness. I see this in the NFL as well, right? I mean, look at the quarterback of the 49ers, right? Mr. Irrelevant, you know, he was last picked in the draft. Now he's in the running for MVP. People can't judge talent at all. They just check boxes. Five-year-old can check a box. Do you feel like you're pretty good at judging talent? Yes. You feel like that's your thing? It is my thing. What, what do you think? I do all this by myself? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't. How much time do you spend judging talent? How much time do you spend recruiting? If you were to audit your calendar... I don't know. Uh, 50%? You know, no, you know, certainly when you say about judging talent, that's every single meeting that I am. I'm always judging. And I, I'm judging them not just like, do I like you or don't I like you? I, I judge people on many different vectors, if you will. Yeah. But you know what I'm very sensitive to is, you know, people that lack task ownership, people that try to delegate upward. I have many, many vectors that I judge people on. They don't even realize it, but I listen and, you know, I interpret behaviors and uh, they stick with me. I see huge differences between people. I can tell when people are going to go places and when they're not, you know, it just exhibits itself in their general posture towards many things. That's what you learn over a long period of time. Yeah. And having been with tons of people and you've seen them, you've seen the ones that succeed and the ones that struggle. And your idea is that there is a extremely high, hard to ignore correlation between those that are going places and some maladjustment something that's bothering them that probably came from young age. I think so. I mean, you're going to ask Elon Musk, you know, I mean, do you think that guy has someone to prove? Of course he does. There's nothing wrong with that. It's very human. It's how, how most people are. They have unresolved, unfinished business. Absolutely. If they were in perfect balance, you know, why get out of bed? Elon Musk has meetings at 1 a.m. I hear from people, uh, you know, closer to him. How many people want to do that? Not many. Yeah. So there's something that propels them that's pretty damn powerful. The interview that he did, which was quite a hilarious interview, one of the things that he was talking about is the storm in his mind. Did you see that? Yes. Where he talks about this storm in his mind. Does that resonate with you? No, but he is a true entrepreneur in the sense that he has a million ideas, you know, a minute. But as he said, I can't execute on them. So I don't like ideas. I have plenty of ideas, but I like execution is really what he said. I'm more on the other hand. You know, I don't have the ideas, but I have the execution. So I, have, I sort of have the other end of the equation. This idea of the voices in his head, I feel that all the time. When I was a kid, I used to hear like screaming in my head. And then as I've grown older, it's just annoying, kind of the noisy neighbor in your head that just keeps banging away at it. And I feel it mostly in times of transition, meaning when I'm going from Friday afternoon, simple example, stopping work to going into what should be family or friends or whatever, that's when the voices in my head become very, very loud. I don't know why, but it's almost like I lose something in the transition. Do you feel that ever? I'm different. Uh, I'm not somebody that has tons of voices in his head. It's more that I have knowing. I'm becoming aware of things that sort of gnaw at me. Like what? When I just think that this is not going to work. Like if there's a problem, someone that you know is not the right fit, that type of thing. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, products that are not tracking and all of that. Acceptance issues, product market fit issues. There's a million issues where you can go like, well, this is not working correctly. And it's, I don't know why. So it's gnawing at you and you can't ignore it. Some people try to ignore it or they try to talk themselves into, oh, it's okay. By the way, that happens a lot in companies where they sort of develop narratives that help them live with unsatisfactory situations. Very common in business. You see that in big companies. They live with mediocrity all day long and they don't do a damn thing about it. I don't. I have a burning need to go and deal with it. That's kind of the point of your book. If I could summarize it, that is the book. But 
then doesn't it kind of beg the question, if you're not predisposed that way, if you don't have that gnawing feeling where you're dissatisfied, where you see something and you're okay with it, don't you think that's either in you or not? Meaning this idea of amping it up, can't you only use that if you have this feeling the gnawing that you describe? I also refer to it as malcontent. I like to attract people that have a general sense of being malcontented. I like people like that. We always talk about things that are wrong, that are not well, because we like talking about things that are wrong because that gives us a sense that, okay, at least we're talking about it now. I had a founder in one of the previous companies you know, that said, he says, I feel like you're indicting everything I've done, and, and, and that's because we're talking about problems. And it wasn't meant to be an indictment. I was not trying to indict anybody, but it was just like that's our natural tendency to want to talk about things that are not going well. Yeah. Why'd you start the book with a daring greatly quote? That's because the book is literally meant for the man in the arena. This came out of a speech by Theodore Roosevelt. 1910 Sorbonne in Paris, part of a much bigger speech that was called Citizenship in a Republic. This is only one little paragraph you know, of that, but he talks about the man in the arena. And by the way, it's now known as the man in the arena speech, but it is exactly for those people. And I know a lot of people that clutch my book like a combat manual. I don't even know what the, the real reason is. How can you be sure? But it's because they feel that I know what they're going through. And because they read it and they're like, this guy knows exactly what I'm going through, which is why they clutch it. This is about as real as it gets to them. Yeah. Whereas there's lots of people who are not the man in the arena. They don't get the book at all. It just goes over their head or it doesn't register. And then because they are not the man in the arena, they are just observers, people with an opinion. But if you've been in those combat, in the combat seat, yeah, you react very differently to the things that I'm talking about. And, you know, I'm not trying to convince anybody. I mean, I wrote it more like, hey, you want to know? This is our best answer at your questions. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that you need to agree with it. We don't really care whether you agree with it or not. Do you ask the question, here's the answer. This is random. Like, do you feel proud? Do you experience the emotion of pride? I very actively suppress the emotion of pride. And the reason, not because it's one of the mortal sins, I do it because the moment I'm proud, I'm done for. Because now I'm satisfied with the status quo. That doesn't go with the malcontented nature. You know, obviously, in you know, the moment you're feeling pride, you're checking the box, you're in the end zone, you, you would do a victory lap, high five. I don't want to be in that place because that makes me weak. When I get satisfied with the situation, that makes me weak. Do you feel like the team, the organization inherits that, that feeling? I try to hire to that attitude and that posture so people with me are very comfortable with that sort of state of mind because it's just how we are. We don't think anything of it. We think it's normal, actually. Yeah. But not everybody. I just gave you an example. People took, you know, a real exception to it because they feel like, well, you know, you're just indicting what's going on here or what's been done. I'm like, it's not meant to be a personal attack. We're talking about the issues. We're not talking about people who did what to whom. It's just about something is not working well, and we're just talking about you know what we can do and all, and all of that. We think that's a pretty normal uh, thing. I think it's good for organizations to always be examining and talking about what can we do different, what can we do better, how do we become better. In the book, I talk a lot about the different things that we do. You know, the whole don't be incremental. You know, in your approach, don't start with the status quo. Try to develop future you know mm-hmm. version of what you're aiming for, if you didn't have any legacy, and then work your way back. Those are all things about, okay, how do I approach something in a way that really yields energy and excitement, and we're now really like what we're doing. Mm -hmm. You have to like what you're doing, otherwise why get up in the morning, right? Mm -hmm. This is not about getting through the day and, geez, it's four o'clock, I'm ready for a cocktail kind Mm -hmm. of thing. It should be fun and exciting and energizing and pace and all the stuff that makes the day fly by as opposed to all the stuff that makes the day a drag. And when you were a kid, where did this come from? Your dad, your mom, like uh, at the dinner table, was it achievement oriented? I wouldn't say it was achievement oriented, but to some degree, it was more like you better work up to your potential, whatever that is. In other words, you needed to be seen as working pretty hard, but it was not an absolute, you know, achievement standard, if that makes any, makes any sense. My dad always said, you know, I go to work, you go to school. Okay, that's your job. You're going to leave it all in the field. You're going to do the best you can. Whatever that is, he said, I'll I'll accept. If you're not putting everything into it, that will not be accepted. 
and the putting everything into it, there's no end. There's no end state there. Exactly, and that is the problem with it. I mean, it looks like a, a reasonable, enlightened <laughs> way of thinking about it. In reality, it becomes a never enough dynamic because when is it enough? Yeah. Do you feel like you do enough today? When you put your head on the pillow at night, did you tell yourself like I did enough? I actually have that test for myself and for others as well, because I talk about drivers versus passengers. And somebody asked me once, you know, how do I know I'm a driver? And I said, you better find out before I do, right? It was sort of a joke. But it's not entirely a joke, because if you have to ask, you probably aren't. You should know that when you were on the ship and you come home on a Friday night, did it matter that I was there? Did I change? Was it really essential that I was there? Are we much better off because I was there, yes or no? And you need to answer that in the honesty uh, of your own mind. Don't bullshit yourself. Can you answer that with conviction? Every Friday night, like, I really did stuff that changed the course of history. That's a high bar. Is that your bar? That is my bar. Do you ask yourself that every f***ing Friday? Yes. And how often are you like, yeah, this week? Well, most of the time, you know, there's certainly enough there where I go like, yeah, you know, it mattered that I was there. You really ask yourself that every week? Yeah, because if I'm just a passenger on the ship, you know, my- That's your nightmare. Yeah, that's my nightmare, yeah. And by the way, there's lots of passengers on the ship in companies, right? They just kind of, nobody would miss them if they weren't there. Well, I don't want to be that person. Yeah. And feel free to like not answer, but with your kids, how do you explain the feeling of pride? It's a very different dynamic that yeah, yeah. way, right? Because you you have more of a nurturing thing. It's different. It's just different. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. You're, you're much more forgiving. You're much more patient. And also understanding that not everybody is the same. You know, not everybody is, has the same psychological makeup. They definitely don't. Yeah. You know, some people are naturally a certain way and others not at all. So you have to account for that, right? You cannot have sort of one giant performance bar for everybody. Totally. You, you'll destroy the relationships because they can't handle that. Is it annoying for you? Like, I don't know. You're, we're going into Christmas. Christmas is next week. Okay. It's like going to be a very nice time with your family. It's going to be a very nice time with my family. And I look at the calendar and I don't see any meetings on there. And I immediately feel anxious. Like I immediately feel like I'm not doing enough. And that feeling then manifests itself when I'm doing these things, when I'm supposed to be not doing those things. And I actually hate it. Like I hate living in the delta between those two realities. Give it a few more years, you know, you might start to ease up on yourself. You know? <laughs> so you don't, you can totally... No, I, I look, I'm always plugged in. I'm never off. Yeah. We communicate also. People don't realize, but our day goes on and on and on. We're always talking. Not everything is, a, you know, an intense confrontational situation. Sometimes it's just, hey, I heard this, you know, what do you know, kind of a thing. So there are lot, there's lots of threats that are happening even when we're supposedly off, you know. Yeah. So. Do you have, like, idols? Do you even believe in this idea of idols? People that you, like, really look up to? I've read an awful lot of biographies over the years, obviously, of people that are historical figures for the most part, but also people that are a little bit more contemporary as well. I don't know about idols, but I'm, I'm certainly, you know, I can be very inspired by certain historical figures, you know, people who their personal character was so impressive. Is that an idol? I think that might be too strong, but it's just a sense of great respect and regard, you know, yes, definitely. As you were rising through the ranks of your career and your stature kind of continued to build, I'm sure you had people that you would look up to, maybe CEOs and stuff. And eventually you probably got to meet all of them. Did they ever exceed the expectation that you had of them in their mind? You know, I never really thought about that, so I don't even know how to answer that. You know, some questions just don't occur to me. Yeah, okay. Yeah. (laughs) There's been been a lot of great people. Like, you know, what's important to me is the content of their character as well. It's not just what you achieved. It's just, how did you do it? Did you become a total asshole in the process? That's not okay. It's how you play the game matters a whole lot. Now, to some people, that doesn't matter. Only the outcome matters. I don't see it that way. You said something at some point where you said you sold all your boats during Snowflake or going into Snowflake. Well, I only had one. You sold it. Yes, because I just didn't think I was going to have time to sail or I didn't want to have to take time to sail because I wanted to be fully plugged in and I didn't want any distractions. 
I'm big at nuking destructions. I do that all day. You literally burn the boats. No, I didn't burn them. You know, <laughs> like I donated them. You know? Yeah. So, uh, but uh, yes, because you know I'm undivided focus and attention. You know, like I, I take my own medicine. Okay, so fully, 100. percent I'm not a very balanced person that way at all. What's your favorite interview question? Do you have one or two that you just like that you drill people with? Yes, I'm big on understanding what people's aptitudes are. And there's a number of ways to assess that. You can look at people's experiences and what they've achieved and so on. You can infer from that what their aptitudes are. But I ask the question, what do they think their aptitude is? What is your center of gravity? What is the stuff that you think you're really, really good at? It's my first question because that's the most interesting thing about you as a person in an interview is not what you did. is about what you're naturally great at because I can give you experience, but I can't give you aptitude. So that's why I'm really hiring aptitude because I'm going to give you the experience. Now, experience can reveal aptitude, but not necessarily. So I ask that question, and I also ask the inverse of that question, which is, what do you suck at? <laughs> People think that's a trick question. It's not a trick question. We are good at some things. We're not that good at others. So that's the conversation. Yeah, and when you talk about aptitude, specifically you mean like what's your power zone? Where do you really spike? Exactly. Where do you naturally become sort of the best version, you know, of yourself. And everybody has things that might be very slim and narrow, but they have something, you know, and I want to know what that is and what they think it is. Isn't it interesting that it's almost always the place that they're most excited about? Exactly. And where their energy is, is where they spike? People never ask me that question. You know, they, they go through your resume and they look at all the jobs you've had and they have questions about that, but they don't ask you the question that is the most important one, which is, what are you good at? What do you think you're good at? What is the real you here? What makes you, you? It's the most interesting question and the most important question you can ask in an interview. And they rarely get asked. Yeah. How do you answer that? Talent? Hiring? No. I'm a, a very abstract a lateral thinker and operator. I'm not a functional exec. I'd be a lousy engineer. I'd be a lousy finance person. Because those are functional, they're narrow and they have functional depth. They're experts. Whereas, you know, I have ability to abstract and to think laterally across domains. And that's how I'm naturally wired. That's really good for a CEO, by the way, because that's almost the definition of the job. Obviously, that makes me suitable for certain kinds of things and not so much for other kinds of things. Isn't that also probably why you were discounted and underrated for so long? Because how do you test for that? I was a product manager and I, I also was a GM for a product, meaning that I built a lot of products and I took them to market. Yeah. And by the way, I was almost subversive in doing it because I was basically an enterprise, a tiny enterprise inside a much bigger enterprise. And I basically overcame the natural boundaries that existed in enterprises in doing it. And, then, and people you know, almost resented me for it because nothing was going to stop me. Any barrier, any boundary, you know, wasn't going to stop me, right? Because I had a goal, you know, I was going to push that product into the end zone. That takes incredible, you know, resourcefulness and determination. But working, basically, the organization you were in became really the challenge. I mean, selling on the outside was easy compared to <laughs> selling on the inside, mm -hmm. you know. And that's the reason why once I got my hands free as a CEO, I was fully empowered. Now, when you're not a CEO, you're not empowered. I mean, by the way, I'm big on empowerment for that reason. I'm giving you all the rope and all the rain you know you could ever want. Most people don't even know how to take the rope and the rain that I give them because they're not used to it. Most CEOs I know don't understand how much rope and rain they were really given. You know, they always think they have to please the board mm -hmm. as if that matters. When you first got your hands free as the CEO, you f anything up? Anything that you wish you could do over that you see a bunch of other CEOs that just now get their hands free do? Yeah, of course, because, you know, I mean, you make a lot of the decisions that don't pan out. That's just the nature of making decisions. Some of them are going to be boneheaded. So you mean just wrong decisions? Yeah, especially around hiring. I've made tons of mistakes over the years, but I correct them. That's sort of the difference, right? I'm not going to go tolerate a bad hire or mediocrity, I'll keep going until I get it right. And then revisiting the like, what do you spike at and what do you suck at? How would you answer the second half of the question on the, the suck at? Well, like I said, I'm, I'm not a, a functional in-depth expert on any one topic. I can roll with engineering, I can roll with finance, I can roll with legal because dangers enough in all those areas, but not to the level of expertise that, you know, the people that that's all they do would have but I'm dangerous enough to know the air. That also makes you a good lateral operator because I know quite a bit about a lot of things. 
but I'm not the expert, but I'm dangerous enough to be very effective with the experts. I'm good at learning, you know, new things very quickly. In all my hobbies, my favorite thing is I'm going to get my own private coach or instructor. I can learn very, very fast. You do that? Yeah, I do that all the time. Whatever it is, golf, cooking, I mean, it's like, you know, when, when I have a one-on-one expert, I can learn very, very fast. So when you want to learn something, you'll just call the expert of that yeah. thing and they'll just coach you. Yeah. Cooking? Come on. You you got a cooking coach? Yes, all the time. It's called YouTube. You know, so, uh, you know Tony Robbins, you know, wrote a book many years ago. It's, it's still super popular, but he said, "Look, if you want to learn how to do something, what are you going to do? You're going to find a, the world's foremost expert, and you're going to go bloody well ask him." <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, well, that's common sense, isn't it? Isn't that the fastest way to learn the best from really, really good people? It's definitely my instinct on how to learn too. You know, a lot of people would pick up a book or something. Like a lot of people would probably find other ways of doing it. If someone wants to learn from you, they can reach out to you. But that's why you wrote the book in some respect. It is. I mean, I've had people that said to me, can I just shadow you for a week or something? And I'm like, no. First of all, I don't want to be shadowed by anybody. And secondly, don't try to be me. You know, you need to become you. You need to find your path. You can't be me. There's only one of me. And my mother would be happy to know there's only one of me. One is enough. You know, we broke the mold afterwards. Just, you can't never be me. You need to figure out how you become you. It's just a very different path. So don't try to look at me like, oh, I'm just going to copy the recipe and then I can go spike the bowl in the end zone. It doesn't work that way. Do you feel like you came into your own, meaning you are who you are, intense, hardcore operator, etc. But that's not status quo. You are different than most. Was there a point where you stopped feeling pressure to assimilate to the style of all these other CEOs and operators and really lean into Frank? Yeah, I definitely don't try to emulate some other... Did it take you doing data domain and putting that on the f***ing table to be like, you know what? Honestly, it didn't. It's just how I'm wired. You know, when I was a data domain, I was over the top intense because... More than now. Yeah, way, way more because I'd burned the ships behind me. It was an absolute no way to fail. There's just no room to fail here. I mean, the level of intensity that that brings on is just unbelievable. But it also is what opens the window to successes, right? Because, you know, like I said earlier, we were not considered a special company for a long time, right? And we had such overwhelming success, but a lot of that came from a group of people who really had this ability to not just understand their challenges really, really well, intellectually honest, but then also figure out what the hell to do about it, not just on engineering, but also on go-to-market. We did a lot of things differently. When we were a neurotic, paranoid bunch, you know, never satisfied with anything, that is fertile ground for breakout scenarios, you know. Somebody... Actually, a lot of people ask me my definition of sales. And my favorite one is the transfer of enthusiasm from one person to another. What do you make of that? When I talk to salespeople, they, they sometimes ask me a question, maybe you know, phrased a little bit differently. But I always talk about inspiring. In other words, you can't make somebody buy something, but you can inspire them to buy something. In other words, you give them the motivation to buy something. I often tell people, like if I'm working with an architect to build something, right? I say, I always say, inspire me. Don't just draw something. Inspire me to want to build this because I'm not going to build it if I'm not inspired. I won't. Inspiration is a whole different level of, oh man, this is so great. I want to I wanna go and do this or I want to go and build this. When I'm selling, I'm trying to give people a vision of what they can accomplish that where they go, holy shit, I want to do this, you know, mm-hmm. for them. Not for us. So you can't really sell, right? I mean, selling is a, is a very indirect thing because you would be one of those guys on TV who's hawking a piece of soap or whatever it is. I mean, like, really? You know, I'm going to go buy that? No, that's not inspiring. Inspiration is a very powerful word because it causes somebody else to want to do something. Do you look forward to the day on the rocking chair on the porch? I don't even think about that, quite honestly. Never? No. It doesn't occur to me. You don't talk to your wife about like what happens one day when we get, you know, the kids leave. We are more like you're sort of evolving, but it's not like 
do nothing all day or just taking it easy. I mean, you, you become bitter from the sweet. How much bad golf can you play? You know? <laughs> so no, you need to stay. I know people of my vintage, they often talk about their third act. The first act being growing up, education, act one, and act two is the entire career. And then act three is what comes after that. Can be all kinds of things, you know. For some people, it's charitable things and, and all of that, trying to make a difference. You know, look at people like Bill Gates. They obviously have a huge third act in what they want to accomplish. But that's sort of, you know, not a bad way to think about it. I mean, you still want to be impactful at some level in some way. Make a difference. Going back to your Tom Brady analogy, the reason Brady stayed on the field for so long, the way he described it was like, I know the answers to the test. And yeah, maybe I'm physically declining, but my mind is sharper than it ever was. And it sees the field in a way that it never did. And I have an enormous clarity of purpose in why I'm doing this. And I think there's something very freeing about that when you're just doing it just for the love. Well, I mean, you look at these quarterbacks, I mean, they live for these split second situations that turns the game from, you know, losing to winning, right? Do you think that's addicting? Of course it is. You're never more alive than when you're doing stuff like that, right? Mm. It is amazing. How do you give that up? Then maybe it doesn't happen every game, but it happens enough. I mean, how many times did you see Brady do that? How many times did you see Montana do that? Well, you may not because you're not old enough, but, you know, he did that too. Mm. You know, he could bring, and by, by the way, there's other quarterbacks, you know, that can bring a team in two plays into the red zone, you know? Do you think they're addicted to that? Big time they are. There's nothing that gives them a greater sense of fulfillment than that stuff. They can't give it up. I only have a few minutes left. One quote that you said that I loved is that early stage enterprises often feel like they're shrouded in a fog of war. Can you describe that feeling? Well, it's just mass confusion. You don't know which way is up or down and sideways. You don't know whether you're completely screwed. And, you know, you're just going to get your ass kicked or, no, there is a way out. And the fog of war is just, you just don't know where it's coming from. And you don't know what the right way forward is. And this is where you learn leadership skills, right? Because in spite of the confusion and the uncertainty, you're going to lay out a path. Here's what we're doing. Everybody come along. And it's very, very important, you know, to develop high clarity, high conviction, high courage. I talk about these things, uh, you know, a lot as a leader. That's how you become a leader. If you start reflecting back, you know, the uncertainty and chaos and mayhem, you're not gonna, you're not gonna be any good as a leader. You're gonna have to take your team forward. It happened to me at ServiceNow, which has just become such an incredibly successful company. There was a time where several of the people of my management team, people that had been with me for a long time, said, you need to sell the company. We can't do this. Why? Oh, because nothing was working you know i mean really we, we couldn't keep the systems up you know cios calling us like what the hell is going on over there there was so much chaos and mayhem going on they're caving from the pressure yeah they were you know at that moment of time you know i just smiled and like no we are going to execute our way out of this and we did painstakingly over a considerable amount of time. People don't know that. They All they see on the outside is, you know, this incredibly successful company. They have no idea the hardships we went through and the sheer terror. You know, opening up my email at six in the morning was like terror because like I cannot imagine the amount of hell that transpired during the night. All that went on. People always think like all we do is victory laps and we're so great and everything is wonderful. It's not like that. I mean, it is sheer terror a lot of the time. Certainly, data domain was like that. We didn't even know whether we could sell a product or not. But then, you know, we had the service and service now that we... I remember one day some freelancing technician accidentally, inadvertently upgraded 800 customers and they all broke. You cannot imagine the sheer hell that happens. And I don't even know to this day how the hell we survived that. How long are you willing to endure that? It's the kind of terror that will stay with you forever because you, you can just taste it. Almost like you're going to throw up inside, like you can feel the feeling of throwing up. Oh, yeah. So that's what people don't know about how close companies come to blowing themselves up. You know, they don't know because all they see is, you know, big market cap, IPOs, victory laps. But what goes on, on the inside sometimes is just terrifying. And do you feel like the fog of war eventually gets lifted? Meaning, do you feel like you're definitely out of the fog of war now? Yes, my whole game is to eliminate the fog of war. I'm, I'm, I'm after clarity and conviction. We're going to see it very, very clearly, okay? And we work on developing clarity all the time. That's what we do. 
like I said, clarity, conviction, and courage. You know, they, they go hand in hand, and it all happens between your ears, you know. I hope you're not done after this. I really <laughs> sincerely, sincerely, I hope you find another one that you, gets you excited. Hey, Snowflake has been a uh, fantastic journey for us, especially now. So you don't feel less terror these days? No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, by the way, every CEO feels terror because you're just not in touch with reality if you don't. The one thing I'll tell you is it's Shantanu Narayan, who's the CEO of Adobe. He said to me once, he says, I can't figure you out. He says, are you such a good CEO or you just know how to pick up? <laughs> and I said, you know what? There's a little bit of both. And the reason is this, right? It's like playing cards. You can be a great card player, you know, James Bond, etc. If you got a bad hand, it won't matter, right? But if you're a good card player and you couple that with a good hand, now you can do some real damage. You need a little bit of both or maybe a lot of both to get really extraordinary outcomes. That's really what it is. I cannot turn a, a shit pile into Snowflake. I can't. But did you think Data Domain was? Data Domain had the right gene pool mm. for me to work with. I knew how to navigate the immense problems we had in the beginning. I didn't know it. I just somehow found my way through. To say that I know it is, is incorrect. I didn't know it. I just did. Sometimes if you don't have any choices, then it's easy because you just take the path that's open to you. And there's no other path. So that's what you take. And that's what I did the day. I mean, I, how I survived that first year. And I'll tell you the story real quickly because it's instructive, right? I started at Data Domain. I already knew about some of the issues. On day one, the Monday, I went to see the CIO of Documentum. Documentum was acquired by EMC years later. He's like, uh, oh, you know, nice to meet you. You know, first day on the job, blah, blah, blah. So we're getting through all our uh, niceties in the conversation. And he says, you know what? Your box was a real hero here on Friday afternoon. And I'm like, do tell. <laughs> and he said, you know, we corrupted our uh, email database, which was a thing back then. You know, exchange databases got corrupted. And he says, we were going to be here all weekend long recovering that database from tape. We had cots, you know, we were getting our cots, we were going to, because the, t- the tapes got fed, right? Right. And he says, then we realized we had it backed up in your little box. He kept selling my little box. He says, it was four o'clock in the afternoon. He says, we went home by 7 p.m. that night. He says, we would have been here all night long. Then I understood, I can sell this. Even though it's only, you know, exchange databases and fairly extreme scenarios, people will buy this box to protect them from that scenario. They will do it. And I was able to sell that again and again and again. I sold $3 million worth that year, year one. The next year, the system was twice as big, twice as fast. Now I'm starting to touch the low end of the higher end use cases. Then I sold $15 million the next year. Then $45 million the next year. $125 million the next year. $250 million the year thereafter. I still know the numbers, you know, by heart. I'll never forget it. $500 million the year after. I mean, it was, and then the EMC got a hold of it. Holy shit. I mean, they sold the living shit out of it. You know, EMC has a tremendous channel, but we had a tremendous product. So you put those together, you know. Yeah. Well, you're kind of doing that now, aren't you? Sure. Of course. Like you're doing that at Snowflake now. You're- Snowflake has very different challenges. They're all different, right? So this is where, you know, intellectual honesty and first principles are so important because they're all different, right? I mean, Snowflake went from very narrow swim lanes. You know, we were just basically modernizing traditional data warehousing workloads, right? And we did that with all, with all these cloud inventions that we had. And it's a long story, but it was amazing because hell, you know. But now the swim lanes are gone. We're in a mega market now. We're not just doing these old data warehousing workloads. And we are full spectrum now. We're doing application development, programmability frameworks. I mean, we're in a mega market now. And the opportunity is a thousand times bigger. Unfortunately, the amount of shit we have to do is also a thousand times bigger than what we were originally conceived to do as a company. So strategically, this is an extremely challenging company. Again, people don't see that on the outside because they're not close enough to it. No, I mean, that's why I do the show, to be honest, is because I think there's a story to tell on the inside that is up and to the right with jagged edges that you would not believe how sharp they are. Now now you know why we're terrorized, okay? This feeling of knowing how much luck permeates in the confluence of your skill and luck, that's gotta be a scary feeling. I'm very respectful of luck. I've been a student of luck for a lot of years, and I've seen a lot of founders that they go like, I did this, I'm brilliant, I'm amazing, I can do it at will. None of them could. 
None of them could. They got lucky one time. They had this confluence of all these things, right? And it panned out and it became this thing. But then they think, oh, I can do it at will. No, you can't, unless your name is Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. The rest of them, they cannot do it again, ever. And all of a sudden, they're all frustrated. I'm like, yeah, there's factors that go into this that you don't even understand. Because they just thought like, oh, I'm so brilliant. So whatever I touch, it's going to turn into. No, it doesn't. I feel like that respect for luck is very important for you to drive you. Well, I call it the life spark. There's a life spark that makes businesses viable. Understanding what that is and how that works is really hard. You can't even be sure of it. How are you sure of that? I mean, you can inspect it and look at it and have theories about it. How do you know? Is it timing? Is it situational? What is it? Why is one company viable and 500 of them just aren't, you know? Don't you think that when people say what they did and how they did it, it's just a rewritten narrative of a few things that fit their story neatly? Uh, companies that have high velocity out of the gate are very, very rare and very, very special. The word velocity, I use it a lot. Velocity is, is the truth. That's the only thing. If, if you have it, you're real. And if you don't have it, you're dead. By the way, if you're a VC, that, that's the only thing you look for is velocity because it, it tells you everything you need to know. I appreciate you. I could keep going for hours with you, so thank you. You're welcome. I wrap all these the same. Is Snowflake hiring? If so, what are you hiring for? Is there anything you're not hiring for? No, we hire uh, across the board, and you need to. Obviously, you know, we're hiring without uh, restraint in engineering roles. We also buy a lot of companies, which are really, that's really hiring. When we buy companies, what we're really doing is hiring talent, you know, most mm. of the time. Again, technology comes from talent. So talent is always the foundation of everything. I refer to them as stem cells, you know, they're power cells that we bring into the body, sometimes in areas that we don't have or where we want to fortify and reinforce. So yeah, we hire in every category, whether it's our commercial legal team, well, I met with this morning, you know, I mean, lawyers are really important in getting deals done, you know? <laughs> you want to sell, you need lawyers. We need people in all kinds of capacity. I mean, it does take a village. It does take all these people coming together and they do. That's one of the great satisfactions of business is you're seeing the whole team come together day in and day out. It's fantastic. Do you think the organization works for sales? Yeah, I mean, we, we have this trick question, you know, when we walk into a room, who's in sales here, you know, and the hands go up. And of course, the right answer is we're all in sales and uh, sales is the tip of the spear and everybody else is the wood that's packed behind the arrowhead. It, it, the alignment is very, very important because they confront reality first, long before we do. They also have the hardest job, so we have to line up behind them and, you, and they have to feel it as well, that the whole organization is there to help them succeed. I find that a healthy organizational posture. And by the way, a lot of people find it logical and, and also it makes them feel like I know where I fit in this picture. It couldn't be more opposite of most Silicon Valley companies though. Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're gonna be very tech-led, but you know, if somebody has to buy stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah, last one, when you hear the word grit, what do you think of, what comes to mind? It just means you're going to basically progress no matter what, you're not backing off, you're not backing away, you find a way through. That's what I think of as grit, certainly in the face of much friction and opposition, being able to persevere and find ways through. You need a lot of that in this business. No. I was looking forward to doing this for a long time, so I appreciate you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production, and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all. <laughs>